Mark chapter 2. Well, I think we focused a little bit on what happened this past week and had a divisive election, had some uh, fears with fire and still have some of that, I guess. I don't know what this week's going to bring. And even Wednesday, there was a tragedy at the Borderline Bar and Grill in Thousand Oaks. And I'm not going to go into the details because I'm assuming most of you know what happened and uh, I don't need to go into all that. But when things like difficulties of running from fires and people who act in um, chaotic and terroristic ways, we ask the question, why? Why is this happening? Why does someone do something like this? Why would someone like this David Long go into this place and kill 13 people? Why? Like what, what possesses a person to do something like this? And I think no matter what the tragedy is, it's always important for us to remember that we go to the truth of God's word to help us understand the world that we live in. God's word gives us the reality check to say, this is the reason why this world works the way it does. I had someone come to me a couple weeks ago and say, there's this tragedy that happened in my life. Why would a tragedy happen? Why is there sickness and death and there's suffering? Well, the scriptures tell us that our world is under a curse because mankind has rejected God. And so we, we face the suffering that is taking place in our world because as a result of sin. Not necessarily because of your sin, there's suffering, although sometimes that's the case. But the idea is that there is the world is groaning under the suffering that was a result of the curse. And Jesus came to this world to be a curse for us, to take upon him the suffering of sin so that we could be redeemed. But we see the, the difficulty in this world. We remember that sin causes suffering. And someday there will be a redemption from that. This world will be redeemed. So the world groans longing for that redemption. Why does someone like this David Long respond in this way? In fact, it's interesting, while he was committing this act of terror, he was actually on Instagram. And he commented on the reason why he might do something like this. I don't know if you read this at all, but this is what he wrote in the midst of this event of terror. He, write, he wrote this. It's too bad I won't get to see all the illogical and pathological reasons people will put in my mouth as to why I did it. The fact is, I had no reason to do it. Just expletive. Life is boring, so why not? How does a heart get so calloused that it can respond in that way? Now, I think that I don't know what happened in his situation as far as was there other substances involved. Sometimes uh, drugs and other things involved in someone's life can, can has a, have effects on them. But again, we can go to God's word and we can know this, that people do senseless things. People do things that are evil and terrible because their hearts are ruled by self. And the designer of this world, the ruler of all God, 
He helps us to understand the reality of what's taking place in this world and why someone like this David Long would do something like that. In fact, this passage, James chapter 4, asks the question, the very beginning of this chapter, in James 4, 1, what causes quarrels and wars or fights among us? Why does this world experience difficulty where people argue and fight? Why do homes face problems and divorce? Why do relationships fall apart? Why does someone act in a crazy way, in a terroristic way? And he answers the question here. Does, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And James says it comes from your desires, your self-centered desires within you. And this reminds us of what we talked about last week, that self desires to rule your inner person. And it does. And when self rules, when, when self sits in the throne of our hearts, our lives are miserable and they cause pain. In fact, verse 2, he says, you desire. You desire self to rule and you don't have. It's kind of like you have that continual argument with that person and you always try to win. Do you ever win? No, right? And what's the, what's the, the end, the extreme of a heart ruled by self? You desire, you do not have, so what? You murder, right? And who knows what was the motive of his heart? What did he really want? Did he want fame? Did he want contentment and satisfaction and thought this would? But he came to the place where he did the worst possible thing with a heart ruled by self. You covet. and You can't obtain. Like you want the peace. You want the joy. So you think you can fight for it, right? You think you can win. But in the end of the day, you fight and you quarrel, but you don't have. And why? You don't have because you do not ask. So you say, well, I do pray about this. Like I pray, right? But the problem is you're asking while you're still, you're asking God for something while you're still sitting on the throne of your own heart, right? You're asking for selfish reason. You haven't, you have made your own idea of who you think God is. And you've asked him to have you help you rule your life. And so you ask, you don't receive. Verse 3, why not? Because you ask wrongly that you may consume it upon your own passions. So the point that James makes is the point that we made last week, which is what? That we can pray, we can fast, but when self rules our heart, it's going to be empty, it's going to be self-centered, it's going to be pointless, right? So what's the answer? Well, our passage today Christ calls his people to turn to him, to turn to Christ and submit to him as the authority and the ruler of our lives. Mark presents the case that Jesus is the divine king and therefore has authority over all. And Jesus calls people in in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Mark, he says to four four fishermen, he says, come follow me, right? Turn from your own way, ruling your own life, and follow me as the Lord, as the king. He says that to a tax collector. And then starting in chapter number 2 and going down through chapter 3 in in the first paragraph there of chapter 3, we see five encounters that Jesus had with the, the Pharisees and with the religious rulers. And we looked at one of the third one last week. We're going to look at the last two this week. So we're going to look at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 this week. 
Last week, we learned that the contrast of two approaches of two lives, of, of, of the two approaches to life is this. So you can have a life that's ruled by self, or you can have a life that's ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when, when life is ruled by self and your selfish desires, your prayers are empty and self-serving. But when Jesus is the Lord of your life, your prayers are joyful because you're coming to the Lord and allowing him to rule your life. And he gives you joy. And you're enjoying him and your affections are delighting in the Lord. So people have really two choices in this world. They come into this world with a life that's ruled by self. And self sits on the, the throne of belief. So I did a little drawing for you. I don't know that picture is not really good up there. So I don't know why that is. But there's, if you can see it faintly, there's a heart up there. And there's a throne. And beliefs are sitting on the throne. And that really dark thing right there says self. Okay. So you just picture a heart, picture a throne. The throne are your beliefs, and you sit on the throne of your beliefs, or you self-rules. And I talked about last week how on that throne, how on the, the throne of, of your beliefs, you can have throne, the throne of beliefs like atheism or agnosticism, and those kind of are ideas that they help enable you to rule your life. Some people even pursue addictions, and the idea of addictions is that I want something to help me control my life, Right? But in the end of the day, you don't actually get the control you seek. It controls you. For the religious leaders in Mark, their religious system was a way to allow self to rule. And so the throne of their hearts was their religious system and their rules that they had and allowed them to rule as the Lord of their lives. But Jesus is saying here, submit to me as the Lord. And really the throne of our hearts is the gospel truth of what Jesus has done for us. So Mark chapter 2 in verse 23. Would you stand with me? I'll read verses 23 through 28 and then the first part of Mark chapter number 3. Verse 23 of Mark chapter 2. One Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? You kind of hear them whining a little bit. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? And he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, referring to himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the clarity that truth gives us the truth of your word. And so I pray that you'll give that clarity 
to us to, to see the world around us, but even to see our own hearts and to see that, God, when we allow our own selves to rule, how miserable that is and help us to submit ourselves, gives us the grace today to submit ourselves to the authority of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we're going to first look at chapter number 2, verses 23 through 28. In this passage here, oh, there we go. It's back up there. So there you go. You can see it. Christ on the throne of your heart there with the gospel. We're going to look at next the contrast of two lords. When self is Lord of your life, religious and cultural norms enslave. But when Jesus is Lord of your life, his gospel set you free. This is an awesome truth that we're going to look at this morning. And so we, we look in verse 23 through 24 there, and we saw, we just read, that Jesus was walking through the grain fields with his disciples. And the Pharisees were saying in verse 24, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And as, as a rabbi, Jesus would have walked ahead of his disciples, and the Pharisees were stalking Jesus, Right? They were somewhere, maybe they were following behind the disciples, or maybe they were hidden in the corner somewhere of the field. But they came and they pointed at Jesus and the disciples, and they were complaining, saying, you broke the law, like you broke God's law. Well, did they break God's law? What were they accusing them of? Well, they weren't accusing them of stealing. You might think, oh, Jesus was taken from the grain fields. Well, actually, they were allowed to do this. Deuteronomy 23, 25 said a Jewish person was allowed to pluck a snack from a grain field, okay? I don't think you're allowed to do that in America, but in the Jewish culture, you were allowed to do that. What they were upset about was that he was doing this on the Sabbath. What was wrong with that? Well, it went against their religious rules. Like they had their religious cultural norms that they set up and people were supposed to follow them. They were the, the Sabbath police, right? They had their rules and they were looking out for people that didn't follow them, although they didn't follow them some themselves. You know, they made exceptions for themselves. What was a Sabbath? You might think, well, isn't that a Jewish thing? Absolutely. Well, Jewish people in the Old Testament were to celebrate the Sabbath, which was a day of rest. That's the seventh day of the week. So it's Saturday. And actually, Sabbath means that, means rest. It means to cease. Who is the first person, or who is the first one, to celebrate the Sabbath? It was God himself, right? He worked six days, and then he ceased from work. He Sabbath. So Genesis chapter 2, verses, verse 2 and 3, it says, On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He rested, or he Sabbathed on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So he ceased working in verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because, it had, uh, because on it God had ceased or rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And then in Exodus chapter 20, and also Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 5, God gives us as a command to Israel and tells them they are to rest on the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath, the Saturday. Remember that day to keep it holy. So what are you supposed to do on that day? Well, six days you labor and do all your work. But on the seventh is a day of Sabbath, a rest. It's a day for the Lord, to worship the Lord. And the idea of a Sabbath was it was an offering of God to them to to bless them. It was a day of grace to say, you don't have to work that day. This is a day you get to enjoy God the whole day, enjoy fellowship and go to synagogue. Now, I think we should pause here to remember that since the New Testament started, since Christ rose from the dead, we celebrate the Lord's Day gathering, right? 
Sunday is a day that Christ rose from the dead. So we as a church gather on this day. So we don't celebrate the Sabbath anymore. We actually are celebrating the Lord's day and his resurrection. But up until the time of Christ, God's people were to celebrate this day as a day of rest and enjoying him. But over the centuries before Christ, the rabbis and the scribes began to define what does it mean to rest on the Sabbath? So they want to be very careful not to break this commandment, the fourth commandment. Don't break that commandment. So they established a lot of laws that would help us not to break that law. They defined what does it mean to rest. So they, they piled rule upon rule upon the backs of the Jewish people. And actually, Sabbath became very stressful. Because you had to follow all the rules and make sure you kept all the rules. If you didn't keep all the rules, you weren't as righteous as other, pe- as other people. For instance, one of their rules that they made was that you were only allowed to walk 1,999 steps. If you walk 2,000 steps, the 2,000th step, you were breaking the Sabbath day. So you were actually breaking, the, you were not resting on the Sabbath. So think about how hard that would be. I mean, literally everywhere you're going, you got to count your steps, you know, one, two, like 1,000. What was I at, you know? Now we have the iPhone, so it'd be a lot easier in fact, I, was, I thought about having you look on the iPhone to see if you've broken that Sabbath rule today because you can count your steps, right? I counted my steps yesterday. I was under 1,000. So I should have got up and done a little bit more work probably on Saturday. Um, but think about the stress upon them. Now, there had to be some exceptions, right? Because there's days when you're going to walk more than that. So, of course, they made another rule that said, you know, you could have a reset. It's kind of like, Kind of like I'm at recess, you know, it's like this is base, you know, when you go to base, you can reset. So if you go into someone's house and you cross the threshold, then you get a reset and you can go back and start all over again. So, so you can be at 1,998, right? And you can knock on someone's door and say, hey, can I come in? And so I can reset and, and then you can walk out of the door and start your steps all over again. And this rule actually was a, a way for them to measure. In Acts 1.12, we see the phrase, a Sabbath day's journey. That's the idea, that you had 2,000 steps on a Sabbath day to make until you broke the Sabbath law of working. And they had so many other rules that they had. And in fact, this is a, kind of a funny one along with this one, because I was thinking to myself, how did they get out to the grain field? Like, wouldn't the Pharisees have broken that law? Well, one of the um, exceptions they made as well is that you could be walking along, And you could point at a tree or a rock, and you could say, you could declare, this is my Sabbath day dwelling. And then step on that, and then step by it, and then you can reset it. You're back, starting at one again. So I can imagine them walking out to this grain field and being like, let this grain field be my Sabbath day dwelling, you know? And then it's like, Jesus, you're breaking the Sabbath. You're You're eating something when you shouldn't be doing that. They had so many rules. In fact, uh, the Jewish Talmud has 24 chapters on Sabbath laws. In fact, one, I read that one Jewish rabbi took two and a half years to study one chapter of those 24 chapters. So let me list some of the laws that I, I read about. One law taught that you were not allowed to look in a mirror because if you did so, you might pluck a gray hair and you'd be reaping. This is true. I'm not making this up. Some of you look at me like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, if the candles were lit already when it became Sabbath, you could not blow them out. If they weren't lit, you're in the dark. Sorry. It was unlawful to move furniture on the Sabbath unless it was a ladder and only four steps. 
uh, it was not permitted to wear false teeth on the Sabbath. So imagine coming to synagogue and singing, right? And the lady with her false teeth is not in there. She's singing behind you. So you get your umbrella out. But you can't do that because that's work, right? Uh, It was unlawful to wear any jewelry or ornaments because then you're carrying a burden. Uh, You could spit on a rock, but you couldn't spit on the dirt. Because if you spit on the dirt, it was making mortar, and then you were working. So you got to have good aim, I guess. Maybe practice the other six days so on the seventh day you don't break the Sabbath. But the list list of rules went on and on and on. So they caught Jesus, you know, plucking, so he's reaping. They caught him, you know, rubbing him with his hand, so he's threshing. And he's he's probably throwing it away, so he's winnowing, right? Preparing the food because he's eating it. And so they're like, oh, you're you're breaking our, our religious rules that we've made. And they created these cultural norms and expected people to follow them. And if you weren't, you were guilty. And actually, you're guilty in their minds of then breaking God's law. Now, think about this. Why would a religious group come up with rules like this? In fact, I guess, I mean, think about this way. Like, why, why does this happen in, in most societies, right? Think about any society. Like, you go over and visit the Philippines, or you go visit China, or you go visit, you know, Southeast Asia, or, or wherever, and they have cultural norms and religious expectations, right? That you're to follow that. And if you don't follow those religious norms, then you're guilty, you're condemned, right? Well, the answer is this. Every one of us has within us a conscience given by God, right? And the conscience, the idea of a conscience that helps us make moral judgments. That's a good thing, right? It's actually a gift from God. The problem is, the bad part that happens, is that people inform their conscience with their religious or cultural norms instead of God's word. And so they, they, it's good to have a conscience, it's good to have it be trained, but they train it with the wrong thing. They train it in the wrong way. They don't train it with God's word. And then people seek to gain acceptance with God and acceptance with other people by keeping those rules or those cultural norms. And every culture, every human system, system whether it be a religious one, or think about it this way, even an agnostic or atheistic system has this as well. Because there's cultural norms set up that says, you have to believe this, and if you don't, you're condemned. You're a bad person, right? So think about some different religions and different approaches to, to thinking and belief. So Islam, for instance. So you have five pillars of Islam, right? You get up and you pray at certain times when the Whatever, whenever it goes off, you know, if you've been in those countries before or those parts of the country, like you hear the sound, the call to prayer, you fast during Ramadan, right? You have ways you're expected to live. If you're Catholic, you go to mass, you have to say your prayers in a certain way. You go to confession, your babies are baptized. You have the last rites when, when you die. If you live in a society like ours, a postmodern anti-religious society, you have cultural norms. Think about this, right? So some of the ideas or principles or truths in their mind in our society is that one is like abortion is accepted right why because a woman should have a right to choose and if you go against that then you hate women right and you're a bad person if you don't think you're a bad person why don't you just put it on instagram or put it on twitter and say your belief right that is against that and everyone with a lot of people will tell you you're a bad person so the, you know, get what I'm saying? There's a cultural norm there. This is like, this has got to be accepted. Or ha- think about this one: if you, if a person chooses to live a, a lifestyle that's maybe a homosexual or bisexual lifestyle, then you must accept it. You can't say that it's wrong or it's sinful or God isn't pleased with it. 
because that's breaking the cultural norm. And if, if you say that, if you say that's, the, that's a wrong choice of a, of a way to live, then you are a bad person. And so the, my point is, is that every, every um, cultural system has expectations for how people are to think and how they're to live. And they're expected to follow those or otherwise they're guilty. And so the religious leaders of the Pharisees, they had the same kind of thing. They took God's laws and decided to add their own rules to it. And the God's laws were good ones. Like it was like, it's good to keep the Sabbath. And they thought they would add 5,000, 6,000, whatever more rules to help you keep God's law. And it seems good. In fact, all these kind of systems in the face of it seem good and seem right. In fact, Jesus, one time in Matthew, he says that it's kind of like whitewashed sepulchers, right? They look beautiful on the outside, but you look on the inside and they're corrupt. Why is that? Because the heart of Man and woman is corrupt. Mankind is corrupt. So no matter what society you live in, people set up religious and cultural expectations. And they teach, listen, they teach that freedom is gained by your human effort to abide by those expectations. You say, well, what about, like, what about our society? Well, you ever heard of the sexual revolution? One of the things you'll hear when you, when you study um, the sexual revolution of the 20th century is this, is that there's freedom in making your own choices. So one of the words that you hear in a lot of these different religions, but particularly in our society, in our postmodern society, is the freedom of making your own choice. But actually, the freedom that you think you're gaining by following those expectations is actually more binding upon you. In other words, it's enslaving to you. All these systems are, are false thrones. You can say it this way. All these systems are false thrones of the heart that man has constructed from his own ideas. And no amount of effort can free you from the guilt and really the sense in your heart that you are condemned. These systems promise that self, that you'll be satisfied. Follow this and you'll find freedom and you'll find satisfaction. That You'll get something good, maybe in this life, maybe in the life to come. But all these are man-made beliefs propping up self as the ruler of one's life. These religious systems make you the savior. They make you the Lord. But when self is the Lord, these cultural norms, these religious rules, they don't set you free from guilt. They actually enslave you even more. There was a man named Augustine. You probably heard of him. Lived in the 4th century. 386 BC, he was a Roman intellectual. And he was in Milan one day and he was one uh, a certain period of time and he was struggling with his belief what he believed he was an intellectual was very intellectual very smart guy but he had chosen a life also of sexual vice and drunkenness he decided he was going to pursue his own self-indulgence but he, he felt trapped he was depressed he had Fear. He had anxiety taking place in his life, and he felt like, I'm, I'm trying to find the freedom by living life how I please, but actually I feel more enslaved. And he picked up a Bible, and he opened up to the first verse that he could find. I wouldn't recommend this is how you find truth, by the way, but this is what happened to him. And he opened up to Romans chapter 13, verses 13 through 14. This is what he read. Not in drunkenness, not in excessive sexual excess and lust, not in quarreling or jealousy, rather put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, for the desires of the flesh. And he at that moment 
And remember, his mom was praying for him, if you know the story, right? He had heard the truth before, but he at moment realized that his pursuit of his own desires, his enthronement of himself was empty. And he decided to dethrone himself and turn to faith in Jesus Christ, and his life changed. In fact, one of the prayers that he wrote later on was, he wrote this, You have, O Lord, made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless. They're not free until they rest in you. I see, the more Augustine pursued self, the more he was enslaved until he submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. When self is your Lord, cultural and religious norms enslave, but Jesus, when he is the Lord of your heart, the gospel sets you free. Jesus responds to the Pharisees in verse 25 with authoritative truth. And when Jesus responds with truth, he does it in two ways. Either he quotes the scriptures, the Old Testament, or he, uh, he states his own authority. He claims truth by his own authority. In fact, verse 25, that's what he does when he, or that's what he does when he quotes the Old Testament. Verse 25, he says, and he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him and how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any, but the priest to eat. And he gave it to those who were with him. So this is, account, this is an account from 1 Samuel chapter 21 when, when David was running from Saul and he was starving. He was hungry. So he went, to, he went to the tabernacle and asked if they had any food there. And the priest gave him the bread of the presence, which in verse 26, Jesus identified that that was actually not lawful for him. It was against the ceremonial custom for them to eat that bread. So David broke the ceremonial law. But notice And Jesus was pointing out, no one ever condemned David for this. Why is that? Because it was life or death. Like the rituals, the ceremony were not more important than David's life. Those were shadows. The tabernacle was a shadow of, of what was to come of Jesus Christ. And they were actually given to help them understand who God was and to bless them. It wasn't, it wasn't given them to harm someone that was needing to be saved by eating some food. So Jesus uses this scriptural account to show them that the ceremonial laws were given to help them understand God. and was not a way for them to, to have acceptance with God. God didn't say, here's the, here's the Sabbath so you, can, so you can follow these laws and therefore gain righteousness with me. No, they were a help to them to show them, here's who I am, to teach them. In fact, verse 27, then Jesus states on his own authority that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 27, he said, the Sabbath was made for man. So when, when, when he established the Sabbath in Genesis chapter 2 and in, in Exodus chapter 20, God gave them that as a gift. It was actually God's kindness and his grace he gave it to them. And Jesus went on to say the Sabbath was made in a kind, gracious way for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, keeping the Sabbath laws was not the purpose of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was meant to be a blessing, not a self-righteous rule-keeping endeavor. But now they had established all these rules and said, basically, you can have acceptance with God and with us <laughs> if you keep these rules. And Jesus is pointing out that this is wrong. 
Religious rules and cultural norms are like a slave master. The harder you work to fulfill that moral code, the more you will be enslaved. And why is that? Because you, as the Lord of your life, cannot be your own savior. Like you can't take away the sin in your heart. Like it's by grace that you're saved through faith in the Lord, right? By faith, it's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works. You can't be the Lord that can give redemption. There's only one Lord. And that's why he says in verse 28, the son of man referring to himself is Lord even of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. That's a shocking statement for them. Like when they were to hear that, it'd be like, what are you talking about? He's saying, I'm the one who established it in Genesis chapter two. Like, then who was that? God. I'm the one who gave it to Moses. I'm actually Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus is declaring, I am the Lord of all. The throne self and the religious and cultural norms that enslave you and allow me to rule your life with the truth, with the gospel. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is what frees us. I should say he, Jesus, is the one who frees us and declares us not guilty. Jesus was the one who created all and man was the one who rejected him. And Jesus was the one who came from a, through a, bir- a virgin to this world to live a sinless life. He was the one who died on the cross. He was the one where the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus and he died and redeemed us. He was the one who rose from the dead. He's the one who sits at the right hand of the Father with all authority. And because of the truth of Jesus, he can free you from the guilt of sin. In fact, this is a message that Paul preached with Barnabas. He was in a synagogue, much like Jesus was. And this is what he preached. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness from sins or freedom from the guilt of sin. How can you have your heart set free from sin? Well, Jesus Christ is the one, verse 39, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You might think, well, if I, if I obey the Ten Commandments or I try to be a good person, won't God accept me? No, he won't. Because you can't be your own savior. You can't be your own Lord. It's a miserable life. And Jesus actually came to save you from that life. When Jesus rules your heart as Lord, the gospel sets you free. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, right? It's according to what? His mercy that he saves us. So what matters most is, is Jesus Christ the one ruling your heart? When Christ rules, we have freedom from sin and freedom to serve him. And so, friend, if you're in here and you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, there's freedom and peace and joy in Christ. And if you're, I would say this to our church, to our church family, brothers and sisters in Christ, we can't allow religious or cultural norms to puff our pride so we walk around as a person who directs worship to ourselves, right? Even there, there's, there's good commands that God gives us, like we're to gather together as a church, right? And we're coming out of our house. If you see your neighbor needs help, right? It's okay to say, I'm going to go help my neighbor, right? 
I mean, they're trying to move their stuff out of their house because they don't know if a fire is going to come. It's like, oh, but I got to go to church today, right? It, it, don't allow sometimes even things that are good from the scriptures to cause you to go against what God wants you to do. Sometimes there's things that are even neutral, like that we lift up and say, this is something everyone should do. Like everyone should dress like I do when they come to church, right? Right, and so we look at other people and we're critical. Well, what, are they going to a funeral or something? Why are they dressed up? Or the opposite, what, do they come from the grave? <laughs> Why are they dressed down, right? So we can, we can take what we think are cultural norms or religious principles, and we can even look down on people, and we can use that to elevate ourselves. We can't, we can't depend on religious rules or cultural norms to give us worth or grace or forgiveness. That only comes through Jesus Christ. We are accepted in the beloved, right? Jesus is the one who gives us grace and worth and forgiveness. So instead, we should allow Christ to rule our hearts, submit to him and his gospel. So when Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, the gospel sets you free. And second, the second contrast of two lords, when self is Lord of your life, religious and cultural norms and slave. Oops, let me do the next one. Your heart is callous. When self is the Lord of your life, your heart is callous. When Jesus is the Lord of your life, your heart shows mercy. Look at verse number one. Again, Jesus shows how blind the Pharisees are. Verse one, again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. I mean, how ridiculous can you get? Think about that. Like, have you ever met a person who could take someone who's completely paralyzed and speak a word and they can rise up and walk again? Or you're afraid that a man with a withered hand is completely withered? That just someone that can speak and he can make it whole? I mean, think about how crazy that is. I mean, don't you think if you're the Pharisees and you see a guy who's claiming to be God and can rise people, raise people from the dead, can heal sickness, and not just like these people that do it fake in our world, right? Okay? It's not like the Benny Hens that say, you know, be healed, and the person falls over, and come on. Like the actual real healing. Like you can cast out demons. Like you see this in front of you. He claims to be God. Don't you think you'd be like, wow, we're waiting for Messiah. Man, we maybe should reconsider. But see, here's the problem. Their hearts were so callous because their hearts were ruled by self. They didn't care what he did. They wanted their way. And I think this is interesting because it helps us really understand our world, right? We can see the crazy things that happen in our world, like the shooting in Pittsburgh or like this shooting in Thousand Oaks. And we wonder, how could someone do something like this, right? Because people can be so blind and they can be so consumed by what they want in life. They don't care about anything else that happens, right? And you look at me and you're like, oh man, I can see that now. But the truth is it happens in our own lives, doesn't it? Like, we can actually be so cruel to people we love because we want what we want. The Bible says in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? What's the answer? I, the Lord, search the hearts. So the Pharisees' hearts are so callous. Verse 3, and Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. So think about the synagogue and this man comes up in front of everyone. You got to think he was maybe a little bit put on the spot, right? Maybe a little bit embarrassed. I mean, you might not know this, but I have half a thumb, 
right? And I have a, a rod in there. I don't really tell a lot of people about it, right? It's not something you like go like, hey, you want to see half my thumb, <laughs> right? I mean, if you have something like that, you kind of hide it sometimes, put it in your pocket, right? You can imagine this guy is going out in front of everyone. Jesus says, come here. In verse 4, he said to them, so look, looking directly at these Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Jesus puts them on the spot. And how do they respond? Duh. <laughs> like, they don't say anything. Look at it. It says, and they were silent. That's some awkward silence right there, isn't it? And even Jesus makes it more awkward by verse 5 when he says, and he looked around at them with anger. Now, how long do you think this was? But here Jesus has righteous anger because he's grieved. Look at the rest of that verse. He's grieved at the hardness of their hearts. You know what? It's okay to have righteous anger. When you see on the news those things that are happening like that, oh, just what in the world is going on? Can you believe someone would do something like that? But you know what Jesus was grieved by? The hardness of their hearts. Why can't they see the truth? Why can't our world see the truth that Jesus is Lord? Why can't, I mean, mean, you can imagine Jesus is right there. He knows everything, so he's not necessarily thinking this, but it's like, I've shown you guys very very clearly, I'm the Lord. You can't see it? You're so grieved by the hardness of their heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. So what did the Pharisees do? Oh, wow, you're the Messiah. No, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. Those are two opposite political parties. They would never associate, except if they were coming together to kill the Messiah. And how they could destroy him. And notice the hard, callous hearts of the religious leaders. They don't care about this man standing in front of everyone. Right? Here's a man who had limited job options. Right, His right hand, according to another gospel, his right hand was the one that was withered. That would have been his dominant hand. So he would have had a difficulty fellowshipping with people. He would have had difficulty having a job. He could have even been a beggar. We don't know. But here was Jesus, the one who could actually heal and help this guy. And they should be cheering him on. Yeah, Jesus, help him. That's great, Jesus. Restore his hand. This would help his life. What a blessing. Show him love. But they can't. Why? Because when self is Lord of your heart, like your heart is callous. They sat there silent. They didn't care about this man. They didn't care about anyone but their own agenda. But not Jesus, right? Jesus, so merciful and caring. Even with righteous anger, right? He still shows love. When self rules our hearts, we don't care. Like we can treat our spouses with contempt. Like we can slam doors in our home and we can yell at people because, boy, they're impossible to live with. Right? Because look how they hurt me. So I can hurt them back. We scold our children and lash out at them in sinful anger. And why? Well, we justify it. It's the only way they're going to listen to me. When self rules the heart, we can say nasty things about our elected officials. We can go on social media and we can say the worst thing about them. Why? Well, they're a bad person. Look at how they're affecting our country. When self rules the heart, we can be self-consumed and ignore the needs of people around us. Why? We say, well, I got my own problems. Can't worry about everyone else's. But when Jesus rules 
your heart as the Lord of your life, and you put yourself under his authority, you actually, it changes how you view this world and you show mercy to people. You look at people of people who have, have needs, who, people for whom Christ has died. And so, so you're therefore kind to your spouse and love them even though you're wrong. You're wronged. You're gentle, yet you're firm with your children, even on the craziest of days, right? Because Jesus is the Lord of your heart. You're going to allow him to rule. When Jesus rules your heart, you, you pray for your elected officials. You actually honor them, as the scriptures say, because that's what a person does who honors the Lord. When Jesus rules your heart, you can be in the midst of a great trial, but you still look around for how you can minister and serve other people. And so when self rules our hearts, we, we, we pray, but it's for our self-promotion. And we follow religious and cultural norms to be approved by people and by hopefully God, right? But it enslaves us. And our heart is callous towards other people. But when Jesus is the Lord of your life, then you fast and you pray because you love him. You want to enjoy his presence. When he's the Lord of your life, his gospel forgives and sets you free to love other people. When Jesus is the Lord of your life, your heart cares about the needs of the people around you. And you show grace and mercy. Let me finish with this passage that I started with. James chapter 4. The question was, why do people have fights and wars? Why do bad things happen at the hands of people in this world? Well, it's our evil desires. So what is the response? James chapter 4 verse 6. God, he gives more grace. In other words, greater than your sin, greater than your passion. You say, well, I can't help it. Nope, not true. Verse 6, James chapter 4. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, says, God opposes the proud. He opposes those who allow self to rule their hearts. But he gives grace. That's his special help. You want God to work in your life? Humble yourself before him. He gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Allow him and his word to rule your heart. Not your self-made feeble, feeble props. Resist the devil and his false ideas. And he will, he will flee from you. Draw near to God. How do you draw near to God? Like, what is the answer for us in here? If you're a person here without Christ, what's the answer for you? Come near to God. What, how do you do that? In prayer. Humble yourself before him. God, Jesus Christ, you are the Lord. You are the Savior. Forgive me. Forgive me for living a life that's opposed to you. And save me from my sin. Thank you for your life and your death and your resurrection. I believe that you are the Lord and Savior. And if you're a believer in here, we should daily be drawing near to him in humble prayer. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. How do you do that? Jesus is the one who cleanses us with his blood. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, you can't have self-rule in Jesus' rule. You can't be double-minded. We must submit the lordship of jesus christ call upon the name of the lord and he will save you as norm said earlier listen that's what we're here for if you're a person in this room and you're sitting there and you're struggling you're like i don't i don't know man i think this is i think i need jesus listen come to him today come to him today and if you're a believer in here and you're like 
I don't know if I've been living for Jesus. <laughs> I don't know if he's the Lord of my heart. Let me say two things. One is you need to consider if you actually are a believer in Jesus, right? You need to make your calling and your election sure. You need to make sure, like, am I truly a person who is living a life as a Christian? And if you are, confess your sin to him. And by his grace, humble yourself before him and live for him. Let's pray. Jesus, we believe that there will be a day, according to Philippians, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and declare that you are Lord. But it is your longing, your desire, that everyone that hears your word and that hears your gospel, that they bow before you now. So God, will you help give grace and faith so that, God, we live lives that are submitted to your authority. And I do pray for maybe that individual or individuals in this room who are in desperate need of salvation. God, I pray they'll call upon you. And for us as a church, oh, we so often drift back into such a selfish lifestyle. Think about the book of Colossians where it says, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. And so the reality is that sometimes we slip back away from you. So help us to walk in Christ. There's so many grieving difficulties, so many difficulties around our city and our area. And we ask for comfort. We ask for provision. We ask for much common grace upon this area. But God, most importantly, the time is short. The end is near. I pray, God, for our, our valley and our neighboring cities. I pray that you will use your gospel to bring them to yourself. In fact, use these tragedies even to help them think about the reality of this world. And may we truly look forward to the day that Jesus Christ is reigning perfectly in a new heaven and a new earth as our king. May we have that reality in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.